Section 10 of Astounding Stories 13, January 1931 by Various. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Eye of Allah by C. D. Willard. Part A. On the fatal 7th of September a certain Secret Service man sat in the President's chair and looked back into the Eye of Allah. Blinky Collins' part in this matter was very brief. Blinky lasted just long enough to make a great discovery, to brag about it, as was Blinky's way, and then pass on to find his reward in whatever hereafter is set apart for weak-minded crooks whose heads are not hard enough to withstand the crushing impact of a lead-filled pacifier. The photograph studio of Blinky Collins was on the third floor of a disreputable building in an equally unsavory part of Chicago. There were no tinted pictures of beautiful blondes, nor of stern, square-jawed men of affairs in Blinky's reception-room. His clients, who came furtively there, were strongly opposed to having their pictures taken. They came for other purposes, for the photographic work of Mr. Collins was strictly commercial, and peculiar. There were fingerprints to be photographed and identified for purpose of private revenge, photographs of people to be merged and repictured in compromising closeness for reasons of blackmail, and even X-ray photography was included in the scope of his work. The great discovery came when a box was brought to the dingy room, and Mr. Collins was asked to show what was inside it without the bother and inconvenience of disturbing lock and seals. The X-ray machine sizzled above it, and a photographic plate below was developed to show a string of round discs that could easily have been pearls. The temporary possessor of the box was pleased with the result but Blinky was puzzled, for the developer had brought out an odd result. There were the pearls, as expected, but, too, there was a small picture superimposed, a picture of a bald head and a body beneath, seated beside a desk. The picture had been taken from above, looking straight down, and head and desk were familiar. Blinky knew them both. The odd part was that he knew also that both of them were at that instant on the ground floor of the same disreputable building, directly under and two floors below his workshop. Like many great discoveries, this of Blinky's came as a result of an accident. He had monkeyed with the X-ray generator, and had made certain substitutions. And here was the result—a bald head and a desk, photographed plainly through two heavy wood floors. Blinky scratched his own head in deep thought and then he repeated the operation. This time there was a blond head close to the bald one, and two people were close to the desk and to each other. Blinky knew then that there were financial possibilities in this new line of portrait work. It was some time before the rat eyes of the inventor were able to see exactly what they wanted through this strange device, but Blinky learned, and he fitted a telescope back of the ray and found that he could look along it and see, as if through a great funnel, what was transpiring blocks and blocks away. He looked where he would, and brick walls or stone were like glass when the new ray struck through them. Blinky never knew what he had, never dreamed of the tremendous potentialities in his oscillating ethereal ray that had a range and penetration beyond anything known. But he knew, in a vague way, that this ray was a channel for light waves to follow, and he learned that he could vary the range of the ray and that whatever light was shown at the end of that range came to him as clear and distinct as if he were there in the room. He sat for hours, staring through the telescope. 
he would train the device upon a building across the street, then cut down the current until the unseen vibration penetrated inside the building. If there was nothing there of interest he would gradually increase the power, and the ray would extend out and still out into other rooms and beyond them to still others. Blinky had a lot of fun, but he never forgot the practical application of the device, practical, that is, from the distorted viewpoint of a warped mind. "'I've heard about your machine,' said a pasty-faced man one day, as he sat in Blinky's room, "'and I think it's a lot of hooey, but I'd give just one grand to know who is with the district attorney this minute.' "'Where is he?' asked Blinky. Two blocks down the street, in the station-house. And if Pokey Barnard is with him, the lousy stool-pigeon—' Blinky paid no attention to the other's opinion of one Pokey Barnard. He was busy with a sputtering blue light and a telescope behind a shield of heavy lead. "'Put your money on the table,' he said finally. "'There's the dicks, and there's Pokey. Take a look.' It was some few minutes later that Blinky learned of another valuable feature in his ray. He was watching the district attorney when the pasty-faced man brushed against a hanging incandescent light. There was a bit of bare wire exposed, and as it swung into the ray the fuses in the Collins studio blew out instantly. But the squinting eyes at the telescope had seen something first. They had seen the spare form of the district attorney throw itself from the chair as if it had been dealt a blow, or had received an electric shock. Blinky put in new fuses, heavier ones, and tried it again on another subject, and again the man at the receiving end got a shot of current that sent him sprawling. "'Now what the devil?' demanded Blinky. He stood off and looked at the machine, the wire with its one hundred ten volts, the invisible ray that was streaming out. "'It's insulated, the machine is,' he told his caller. "'So the juice won't shoot back if I keep my hands off. But why?' he demanded profanely. "'Don't it short on the first thing it touches?' He was picturing vaguely a ray like a big insulated cable, with light and current both travelling along a core at its centre, cut off, insulated by the ray, so that only the bare end where the ray stopped could make contact. "'Some more of them damn electrons,' he hazarded, then demanded of his caller, "'But am I one hell of a smart guy? Or am I?' There was no denying this fact. The pasty-faced man told Blinky with lurid emphasis just how smart. He had seen with his own eyes, and this was too good to keep. He paid his one grand and departed, first to make certain necessary arrangements for the untimely end of one pokey Barnard, squealer, louse, etc., etc., and then to spread the glad news through the underworld of Collins' invention. That was Blinky's big mistake, as was shown a few days later. Not many had taken seriously the account of the photographer's experiments, but there was one who had, as was evident a bearded man, whose eyes stared somewhat wildly from beneath a shock of frowsy hair, entered the Collins' workroom and locked the door behind him. His English was imperfect, but the heavy automatic in his hand could not be misunderstood. He forced the trembling inventor to give a demonstration, and the visitor's face showed every evidence of delight. "'The current,' he demanded with careful words, "'the electric current you shall do also yes again the automatic brought quick assent and again the visitor showed his complete satisfaction showed it by slugging the inventor quietly and efficiently and packing the apparatus in the big suitcase he had brought blinky collins had been fond of that machine he had found a form of television with uncounted possibilities 
and it had been for him the perfect instrument of a blackmailing peeping Tom. He had learned the secret of directed wireless transmission of power, and had seen it as a means for annoying his enemies. Yet Blinky Collins, the late Blinky Collins, offered no least objection when the bearded man walked off with the machine. His body, sprawled awkwardly in the corner, was quite dead. And now, some two months later, in his Washington office, the chief of the United States Secret Service pushed a paper across his desk to a waiting man and leaned back in his chair. "'What would you make of that, Dell?' he asked. Robert Delamater reached leisurely for the paper. He regarded it with sleepy, half-closed eyes. There was a crude drawing of an eye at the top. Below was printed, not written, a message in careful, precise letters. "'Take warning. The eye of Allah is upon you. You shall instructions receive from time to time. Follow them. Obey.' Delamater laughed. Why ask me what I think of a nut-letter like that? You've probably had plenty of them just as crazy." "'This didn't come to me,' said the chief. It was addressed to the President of the United States. "'Well, there will be others, and we will run the poor sap down. Nothing out of the ordinary, I should say. That is what I thought, at first. Read this.' The big, heavy-set man pushed another and similar paper across the desk. This one was addressed to the Secretary of State. Delamater did not read it at once. He held both papers to the light. His fingers touched the edges only. No watermark, he mused. Ordinary white writing stock. Sold in all the five and ten cent stores. Tried these for fingerprints, I suppose. Read it, suggested the chief. Another picture of an eye, said Delamater, aloud, and read, Warning. You are dealing with an emissary from a foreign power who is an unfriend of my country. See him no more. This is the first and last warning. The eye of Allah watches. And what is this below? He did not care for your cigars, Mr. Secretary. Next time. But there must be no next time. Delamater read slowly, lazily. He seemed only slightly interested except when he came to the odd conclusion of the note. But the chief knew Delamater, and knew how that slow indolence could give place to a feverish, alert concentration when work was to be done. "'Crazy as a loon,' was the man's conclusion as he dropped the papers upon the desk. "'Crazy,' his chief corrected, like a fox. Read the last line again. Then get this. The Secretary of State is meeting with a foreign agent who is here very much incog came in as a servant of a real ambassador, slipped quietly into Washington, and not a soul knew he was here. He met the secretary in a closed room. No one saw him come or leave. Well, the secretary tells me that in that room, where nobody could see, he offered this man a cigar. His visitor took it, tried to smoke it, apologized, and lit one of his own vile cigarettes. Hmm. Delamater sat a little straighter in his chair. His eyebrows were raised now in questioning astonishment. Dictaphone? Some employee of the department listening in? Impossible. Now that begins to be interesting, the other conceded. His eyes had lost their sleepy look. Want me to take it on? Later. Right now, I want you to take this visiting gentleman under your personal charge. Here is the name and room and hotel where he is staying. He is to meet with the secretary tonight. He knows where. You will get to him unobserved, 
absolutely unseen. I can leave that to you. Take him yourself to his appointment, and take him without a brass band. But have what men you want tail you and watch out for spies. Then, when he is through, bring him back and deliver him safely to his room. Compre? Right. Give me Wilkins and Smeed. I rather think I can get this bird there and back without being seen. But perhaps they may catch Allah keeping tabs on us at that. He laughed amusedly as he took the paper with the name and address. A waiter with pencil and order pad might have been seen some hours later going as if from the kitchen to the ninth floor of a Washington hotel, and the same waiter, a few minutes later, was escorting a guest from a rear service door to an inconspicuous car parked nearby. The waiter slipped behind the wheel. A taxi, whose driver was half asleep, was parked a hundred feet behind them at the curb. As they drove away, and no other sign of life was seen in the quiet street, the driver of the taxi yawned ostentatiously and decided to seek a new stand. He neglected possible fares, until a man he called Smeed hailed him a block farther on. They followed slowly after the first car, and they trailed it again on its return after some hours. "'Safe as a church,' they reported to the driver of the first car. "'We'll swear that nobody was checking up on that trip.' And, okay, Delamater reported to his chief next morning. Put one over on this self-appointed Allah that time. But the chief did not reply. He was looking at a slip of paper like those he had shown his operative the day before. He tossed it to Delamater and took up the phone. To the Secretary of State, Delamater read, You had your warning. Next time you disobey, it shall be you who dies. The signature was only the image of an eye. The chief was calling a number. Delamater recognized it as that of the hotel he had visited. "'Manager, please, at once,' the big man was saying. He identified himself to the distant man. Then, "'Please check up on the man in 947. "'If he doesn't answer, enter the room and report at once. I will hold the phone.' The man at the desk tapped steadily with a pencil. Robert Delamater sat quietly, tensely waiting, but some sixth sense told him what the answer would be. He was not surprised when the chief repeated what the phone had whispered. Dead? Yes. Leave everything absolutely undisturbed. We will be right over. Get Dr. Brooks, Dell, he said quietly. The eye of Allah was watching after all. Robert Delamater was silent as they drove to the hotel. Where had he slipped? He trusted Smeed and Wilkins entirely. If they said his car had not been followed, it had not and the visitor had been disguised. He had seen to that. Then where had this person stood, this being who called himself the Eye of Allah? "'Chief,' he said finally, "'I didn't slip, nor Wilkins or Smeed.' "'Someone did,' replied the big man, "'and it wasn't the Eye of Allah, either.' The manager of the hotel was waiting to take them to the room. He unlocked the door with his pass-key. "'Not a thing touched,' he assured the Secret Service men. "'There he is, just the way we found him.' In the doorway, between the bedroom and bath, a body was huddled. Dr. Brooks knelt quickly beside it. His hands worked swiftly for a moment. Then he rose to his feet. "'Dead,' he announced. "'How long?' asked the chief. "'Some time. Hours, I should say. Perhaps eight or ten. "'Cause?' The query was brief. "'It will take an autopsy to determine that. There is no blood or wound to be seen.'" End of Part A